This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you another informative hour, including anything and everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and most of all, how to make sense out of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And this installment of Psychiatry Today was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday, August 31st, 2016. And uh, those of you who should be alert to seasonal changes because that affects your mood when the days get shorter, you can already tell that it's getting dark a little bit earlier. Uh, So uh, time to dust off your light box if you haven't used it since last winter and um, you know think think ahead in November start going uh, to bed a little bit earlier the week or two before we turn the clocks back and it won't be such a big jolt well in any case certainly one major health related news item not only in mental health or news about the brain as uh, a most important part of the body, Um, the Zika virus, the effect of the Zika virus uh, transmitted by the bite of the mosquito. That was such a major issue um, in in Brazil, and this carried into uh, the major event that was just there, the Rio Olympics. But most of what you hear and read about when it comes to the most devastating consequence of of the Zika virus is that it causes a specific and very serious birth defect in babies born to women who were infected with it while pregnant. And that's called microcephaly, which uh, stated simply, is a malformation of the brain and head, which are abnormally small uh, compared to uh, normal babies. But uh, a report that I'm about to relate to you details that the microcephaly is just the tip of the iceberg. There is a lot more damage that the Zika virus can do to brain development, and people need to be aware how serious this is so that there can be more pressure brought to bear 
uh, on the authorities who can actually do something about <clears throat> trying to prevent the spread of the Zika virus and ensure that the proper resources uh, are being allocated toward that effort. It is a study published by Brazilian researchers along with those from Tel Aviv University in Israel and the Boston Children's Hospital in the United States. The study indicates that microcephaly, a very, un, a very typical frequent feature in cases of Zika virus uh, in terms of the infection uh, during uh, pregnancy, is just one of several observed brain changes. And the results of the study are extremely important as they describe which areas of the brain are most affected and the severity of such damages. The research was published in the scientific journal Radiology, and it assessed pregnant women, fetuses, and newborns infected by Zika virus through CT scans, MRI scans, and ultrasound. The study was essential to identify the severity of the neurological changes induced by the viral infection in the developing central nervous system. The study also stresses the importance of describing different malformations in the brains of fetuses and newborn babies caused by Zika virus. Unlike observed in other infections that, have, that affect the brain, such as toxoplasmosis, rubella, cytomegalovirus, and herpes, the fetuses and babies' brains infected by the Zika virus showed malformations in the cortex, the outer layer of the brain, and also changes located at the junction of the brain's white and gray matter. Gray matter are the cell's uh, central part, uh, and the white matter are the extended parts from the central portion of the brain cell that communicate with other brain cells. The researchers also identified reduction in brain volume and developmental abnormalities of the cortex of the brain, again the outer layer, and something called ventriculomegaly. This is a condition in which the normal uh, spaces in the brain, which are typically filled with fluid, are larger than normal. What that means is there is less brain tissue than there ought to be. So those uh, normally fluid-filled spaces get bigger. Notwithstanding the fact that almost all babies have shown abnormalities in head circumference uh, when looking at Zika-infected babies, the cases of normal head circumference in some babies were also found. The results also pointed out abnormalities in the corpus callosum. This is a very, very large bundle of nerve fibers that is responsible for communication between the brain's left and right hemispheres. 
And this is uh, showing that the brain cells in this area did not develop properly. They didn't migrate to the right places, resulting in adequate connections between the two hemispheres of the brain. The research team will undertake further research correlating uh, changes in the brain in the study with clinical and immunological data in addition to information from the environment where mothers and babies were infected. They are developing a follow-up study to investigate how the congenital infection by Zika virus can interfere not only in the prenatal period, but also postnatally in terms of brain maturation. Again, microcephaly is only the tip of the iceberg. The corpus callosum abnormality has also gotten a slight bit of attention in the lay media. But really, folks, this is meant to improve the messaging that the infection of Zika is very, very serious. The effects on brain development are absolutely devastating. And uh, again, this needs to be taken more seriously. More resources need to be devoted to it uh, to prevent these horrible consequences. Uh, really, uh, a baby born with these malformations um, is is never going to live a normal life, develop normally, and it's uh, a tragedy uh, when something like this can be prevented. Well, um, <clears throat> another sort of uh, unfortunately downbeat study to bring to you, uh, many adults who screen positive for depression don't receive treatment. Now, this is far from news. Uh, uh, we've known for a long time that we do a pretty poor job about getting all those who suffer from depression to treatment. Uh, so this just reinforces that message. Uh, it's a new study suggesting that the gaps that exist in the treatment of depression with many individuals who screen positive for the mental health disorder, depression, not receiving treatment, uh, it was published online in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine. Previous research has suggested many adults with depression are not treated for their symptoms. Screening for depression has received increased attention with the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommending that adults be screened for depression and that follow-up services for treatment be provided. I recall uh, talking to you about that on my podcast. It was a very, very exciting development. This is the same uh, group that promulgates recommendations for screenings for all kinds of other health problems, breast and prostate cancer most prominently, uh, and lots of other health issues. So for them to come out and say there needs to be regular preventative screening for depression, that's absolutely a huge development. So it's very important to assess 
National Treatment Patterns for Those Who Screen Positive for Depression. Researchers at the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University in New York analyzed data from over 46,000 adult responses to medical expenditure panel surveys in 2012 and 2013. Of the 46,000 or so adults, 8.4% screened positive for depression and 28.7% of those adults received any treatment for depression. Um, not a good track record, as you can see. Well, I think we'll pause here and take our first commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue to look at the results of this study, again, documenting the undertreatment of depression, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and as always, we're talking about the latest mental health-related news and... We started talking before the break about the latest in a long line of studies showing that we don't do a good job making sure that people who are depressed get help. Um, <clears throat> in this study done at Columbia, overall, 8.1% of the 46,000 plus adults received any treatment for depression, 
regardless of the results of a depression screen. And among all adults treated for depression, 29.9% had a positive depression screening and 21.8% had serious psychological distress. Antidepressant medications were the most common treatment for depression, followed by psychotherapy. Now, why should that be the case um, is certainly controversial. While uh, in recent decades it has become much better known that depression is a biological disorder and that there are um, chemical and hormonal abnormalities in the brain associated with depression, that medications can alleviate the symptoms and help people recover functioning. Uh, psychotherapy certainly remains an extremely important component of depression treatment. It is most often given short shrift in terms of coverage by health insurance plans which see psychotherapy uh, meeting with a therapist for 50 minutes every week as being something extremely expensive um, if not uh, set some limits on it, it becomes uh, open-ended and uh, it's much more cost-effective in the health insurance company's eyes to emphasize medication treatment which is administered with much briefer, uh, much less frequent visits and therefore costs the health insurance company a lot less money. General medical professionals were the ones who treated most people with depression, not psychiatrists. Why is that? Well, a lot of different reasons. Um, for one thing, there are far few of us to go around to treat all the people who need help with depression or other psychiatric problems. For another thing, there is still a tremendous stigma attached to going to a psychiatrist and most people are much more comfortable avoiding that potential stigma and simply having their primary care physician treat them for the problem. Patients with serious distress who were treated for depression were more likely to be treated by a psychiatrist than those patients with less distress. There is the stereotype out there that we psychiatrists only treat the most severe cases while the less severely ill, perhaps uh, unfairly, I shouldn't say perhaps, definitely unfairly those called the worried well um, are treated by primary care physicians. I say this is a stereotype because in reality primary care physicians often wind up treating people who are much more severe than the so-called worried well, uh, again, owing to the patient's reluctance to go to a psychiatrist or the inability to find one who could treat them, uh, especially in a timely fashion. With there being too few of us, it takes too long to get in to see uh, one of us. And then, of course, there's the issue that uh, too few of us accept health insurance. And so all those things conspire to uh, result in that most medications for depression and other 
mental health problems are prescribed by non-psychiatric physicians. And the study that we're talking about from Columbia did look at some insurance issues, publicly insured individuals, so that's Medicare or Medicaid, they had some of the highest percentages of depression treatment. Well, because uh, there are specific places that people who have these health insurance plans can go and uh, their out-of-pocket costs for their care are, are much milder than people who have commercial plans that may have very high deductibles and co-payments. <clears throat> now, some of the lowest percentages of treatment, not unsurprisingly, were found among uninsured adults and those of racial and ethnic minorities and men compared with women. Uh, why is that? Well, uh, men uh, are not as likely to admit to themselves or others that they have a problem with depression and need medical treatment for it. You can say that's a tired old gender stereotype if you want, but the reality is uh, that is what we mental health professionals see all day, every day. And uh, I also hear this from my female patients about their male partners routinely and have for years. <clears throat> Study limitations include that these were surveys and therefore the results relied on the respondents' recall and the diaries they were asked to keep. Um, so, and there's no information available concerning treatment outcomes, just whether someone got treatment or not. Um, but regardless, the main take-home point is that among adults who receive depression care, uh, it is important to align patients with appropriate treatments and healthcare professionals, and uh, simply important to make sure people who suffer from depression can get the help that they need. However, what the article about the study doesn't mention is that uh, another big component of this issue is patients' preferences. Uh, there are patients who prefer psychotherapy instead of medication. There are, believe it or not, patients who prefer medication only and not psychotherapy. And uh, ideally, the treatment should include both. Um, <clears throat> but again, there are lots of things to take into account on the patient side. Uh, their own personal stigma, the stigma in society at large, there are cultural taboos in many different uh, cultural and ethnic groups about mental health treatment. Uh, the bottom line is that the Columbia study is just more evidence that we don't get the help to depressed patients that need it. Uh, <clears throat> hopefully, getting information like this out there will help improve that situation. Next up on psychiatry today, also something to do with differences in terms of the effects of stress in gender. Now, if I said we were going to talk about an article documenting 
the results of stress uh, on heart health and the connection between stress and heart disease, you might very well think that this would apply more to men. But this study shows that young women, not uh, older women, young women, have cardiac evidence of uh, the effects of stress. Younger women with coronary heart disease and mental stress are more susceptible to myocardial ischemia. Ischemia is reduced blood flow to the heart muscle, which can lead to a heart attack, even when compared to men and older patients of both genders. This is, according to new research in the Journal of the American Heart Association, and we know that already, of course, coronary heart disease is a leading cause of death in American men and women. But studies show that younger women have higher rates of complications and death after a heart attack compared to their male counterparts. Younger women tend to have quite a lot of stress in their lives. Many of them have full-time jobs and at the same time have numerous responsibilities at home. They may also have financial hardship, and depression and anxiety are very common in this group. The research which was done here in Atlanta at Emory University emphasized that clinicians should ask about stress and emotional difficulties in younger women and recommend ways to get help, uh, counseling, finding time to relax and exercise. It was called the Mental Stress Ischemia Mechanisms Prognosis Study and it included 686 patients uh, and 191 women between the ages of 34 and 79 years old with coronary heart disease. Patients underwent imaging tests, meaning researchers took pictures of their hearts before and during mental stress, and then examined changes in blood flow between men and women with age as a factor. They found stress-induced reduced blood flow happened more often in younger women compared to men and older women, occurred in 33% of women age 50 years old or younger compared to 8% of men of similar ages and that the difference between men and women decreased with age and disappeared in older patients. The frequency of reduced blood flow almost doubled in women compared to men for every 10 year decrease in age. The findings suggest that women with heart disease in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s are more vulnerable to the damaging effects of psychological stress on their heart. The researchers admitted their study is limited by the relatively small number of younger women involved and that further studies are needed to confirm the clinical significance of mental stress-induced heart attacks in women. This is one area where apparently more attention needs to be paid to the effects 
of stress on cardiac health in women at younger ages compared to older women and compared to men. We're going to take another break here and we'll be back with more mental health related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Now we're going to turn our attention to child's brain development, children's brain development. This study I'm about to tell you about makes a very strong case for increasing the amount of exercise and physical activity that children should get, uh, making a case for preserving, if not restoring, physical education classes and time spent in PE, in school, and also making the case for making kids get outside and play and do something physical instead of staying inside and staring at screens for hours at a time. Researchers have found an association between physical fitness and the brain in 9- and 10-year-old children. Kids who are more physically fit tend to have a larger hippocampus in their brains. The hippocampus is a small portion 
uh, at the tip of the temporal lobe of the brain. It's very much involved in learning and memory. And these kids perform better on a test of memory than their less physically fit peers. The new study used MRI imaging to measure the relative size of specific structures in the brains of 49 child subjects appears in the journal Brain Research. The study used MRI measures to look at the differences in the brain between kids who are fit and kids who aren't. Beyond that, it relates those measures of brain structure to cognition, which refers to thinking, attention, and memory. The study focused on the hippocampus, as I said, a structure tucked deep in the brain in the temporal lobe, because it is known to be important in learning and memory. Previous studies in older adults and in animals have shown that exercise can increase the size of the hippocampus. A bigger hippocampus is associated with better performance on spatial reasoning and other cognitive tasks. In animal studies, exercise has been shown to specifically affect the hippocampus, significantly increasing the growth of new brain cells and the survival of brain cells, enhancing memory and learning, and increasing the production of molecules that are involved in what's called brain plasticity. Uh, that refers to uh, cells being able to adapt and engage in different functions and uh, make new pathways. Uh, other research has shown the type of molecules they're talking about are increased by regular exercise. Uh, one in particular I'll mention, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF for short. This is a protein that is produced by brain cells uh, in greater quantities with regular exercise, and the benefit of BDNF is that it helps brain cells to be nourished and better protected against damage. Now, rather than relying on second-hand reports of children's physical activity level, which obviously wouldn't be reliable coming from a 9 or 10-year-old, and unfortunately would also not be reliable from their parents, researchers measured how efficiently the subjects used oxygen while running on a treadmill, which is unfortunately for the time being the gold standard measure of fitness. The physically fit children were much more efficient than the less fit children at utilizing oxygen, which is certainly what you would expect. When they analyzed the MRI data, the researchers found that the physically fit children tended to have bigger hippocampal volume, about 12% bigger relative to total brain size than their out-of-shape peers. The children who were in better physical condition also did better on tests of relational memory, that is, the ability to remember and integrate various types of information, 
compared to their less fit peers. More fit children had higher performance on the relational memory task. More fit children had larger hippocampal volumes. And in general, children with larger hippocampal volumes had better relational memory. Further analyses indicated that those with the bigger hippocampus uh, had better performance on relational memory. These new findings suggest that interventions to increase childhood physical activity could have an important effect on brain development. Experience and environmental factors and socioeconomic status all impact brain development. And if you're not fortunate enough to get the best genes from your parents, that's also something you can't fix. And it's not easy to do something about your socioeconomic status either. But getting more physical activity is something that uh, anyone can do something about. Well, so there you have it. And again, they were only looking at 9 and 10 year olds. Uh, I don't think it's so far-fetched to speculate that if you start the extra physical activity and improve uh, fitness in general at an earlier age, that the benefits wouldn't be even greater as you get this started earlier on in brain development and uh, continuing forward um, into adolescence. Well, we're going to shift our focus to a much older age group, uh, not elderly, but just much older than 9 and 10-year-olds. Let's look at a study of people in their 40s. And uh, this next article actually counts as this week's Stress in the Workplace update because it tells us that lousy jobs hurt your health by the time you're in your 40s. Yes, it's, uh, it turns out that, according to researchers at Ohio State University, early job satisfaction has the strongest impact on mental health. Job satisfaction in your late 20s and 30s has a link to overall health in your early 40s, according to a new nationwide study. While job satisfaction had some impact on physical health, its effect was particularly strong for mental health. Those less than happy with their work early in their careers said they were more depressed and worried and had more trouble sleeping. And the direction of your job satisfaction, whether it's getting better or worse, in your early career has an influence on your later health. The good news is that people whose job satisfaction started low but got better over the course of their early career didn't have the health problems associated with consistently low or declining satisfaction. Researchers found a cumulative effect of job satisfaction on health that appears as early as your 40s. The research was presented on August 22nd in Seattle 
at the annual meeting of the American Sociological Association. The results showed the importance that early jobs have on people's lives. You don't have to be near the end of your career to see the health impact of job satisfaction, particularly on your mental health. Researchers used data from 6,400 Americans who participated in the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth 1979, which followed adults who were between the ages of 14 and 22 when the survey began in 1979. Researchers examined job satisfaction trajectories for people from age 25 to 39. These participants then reported a variety of health measures after they turned 40. Participants rated how much they liked their jobs from a rating of 1, which was dislike very much, to a rating of 4, which was like very much. The researchers put participants in four groups. Consistently low and consistently high job satisfaction, those whose satisfaction started high but was trending down, and those whose job satisfaction started low but was trending higher. The average score of those classified as the low satisfaction group was nearly three, meaning they liked their job fairly well, but there was a lot of variance in that group, meaning that it included all the people who said they disliked their jobs somewhat or very much. About 45% of participants had consistently low job satisfaction, uh, pretty scary, almost half, while another 23% had levels that were trending downward through their early career. About 15% of people were consistently happy at their jobs, <clears throat> a disappointingly low percentage, and only about 17% showed an upward trend in their job satisfaction. Using those who were consistently happy as the reference, the researchers compared how the health of the other three groups compared. Mental health was most affected by people's feelings about their jobs. People who were in the low job satisfaction group throughout their early careers scored worse on all five of the mental health measures studied. Well, we're going to take another commercial break here, and we'll finish when we come back looking at the results of this job satisfaction and mental health study, and we'll have other mental health-related news. All that and more after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Some sobering statistics from a study regarding the long-term effects of less than optimal job satisfaction, uh, if you have low or uh, jo- low job satisfaction or that which is trending downward early in your career, uh, it's an indication you may have mental health problems by the time you hit your 40s. Uh, so people who were in the low job satisfaction group in the study throughout their early careers scored worse on all five of the mental health measures studied, they reported higher levels of depression, sleep problems, and excessive worrying. They were also more likely to have been diagnosed with emotional problems and scored lower overall on the test of mental health. Those whose job satisfaction started out higher but declined through their early career were more likely than those with consistently high satisfaction to have frequent trouble sleeping, excessive worry, and had lower scores for overall mental health. 
but they didn't see an impact on depression scores or their probability of being diagnosed with emotional problems. Those whose satisfaction scores went up through their early career years did not see any comparative health problems, not surprisingly. The physical health of those who were unhappy with their jobs wasn't impacted as much as mental health. Very interestingly, I think, those who were in the low satisfaction group and those who were trending downward in their job satisfaction reported poorer overall health and more problems like back pain and frequent colds compared to the high job satisfaction group, but they weren't different in physical functioning or in doctor-diagnosed health problems, such as diabetes and cancer. As was true for mental health, no effects were seen on physical health for those trending upward in their job satisfaction. It is important to remember that participants were studied when they were only in their 40s. The higher levels of mental health problems for those with low job satisfaction may be a precursor to future physical problems. Increased anxiety and depression could lead to cardiovascular or other health problems that won't show up until they are older. Now, the study ended before the Great Recession, which almost certainly increased job insecurity and dissatisfaction, and that could have resulted in more negative health effects. So there you have it, uh, those early in their career should pay more attention to their job satisfaction to have better mental health by their 40s. Well, again, I think the point of mentioning that the study was done before the recession is that it was very hard for a lot of people to have job satisfaction during the Great Recession because uh, during that time, there was so much more unemployment, and people who were employed had to put up with things they weren't happy doing uh, because it wasn't as easy to change jobs and find something better as it was before the recession. Now, let's turn our attention to a study of how we apply judgments by looking at facial expressions and how these snap judgments unfortunately can lead to social exclusion. People are often excluded from social groups and as researchers from the University of Basel report in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology whether uninvolved observers find this acceptable or not may depend on the facial appearances of those excluded. The exclusion of cold and incompetent looking people is more likely to be accepted. Social exclusion, be it at school, work, or among friends, 
is usually a painful experience for those affected. This behavior also often has a considerable effect on third-party observers. Bullying and ostracism with the aim to hurt the victims are seen as particularly unfair and morally unacceptable. However, in some cases, social exclusion is also perceived as justified. Groups are, for example, more likely to ostracize people who cause trouble or arguments in order to restore the harmony in their group. Whether uninvolved observers view social exclusion as morally justified or not can be very important for the victim as a possible intervention depends on that judgment. Making such a moral judgment, however, is often difficult and time-consuming, which is why observers revert to relatively superficial indicators for guidance. One such indicator is the face of the excluded person. Now, as we'll see, researchers are not suggesting that people make these judgments consciously. In other words, we don't go around thinking, well, I'm going to look at this person's facial expression, and based on what I think there, I'm going to make a judgment as to whether to socially exclude this person or not. No, it just happens without such conscious deliberation. In several studies, the team of psychologists presented different male faces to a total of 480 participants. The facial characteristics had previously been altered using a recently developed method for facial manipulation. The portraits were manipulated to appear warm or cold, incompetent or incompetent. The participants looked at each portrait for two seconds before spontaneously deciding how acceptable they thought it was for a group to exclude this person. In all studies, participants found it more acceptable to socially exclude people whose faces looked cold and incompetent. However, exclusion was found least acceptable when those excluded looked warm and incompetent. A possible explanation for this could be that these people are often perceived as especially in need of protection and therefore excluding them from a group would be particularly cruel. Earlier studies have shown that humans have very clear-cut ideas of what a warm or cold person looks like. However, there is no evidence for any relation between facial features and personality traits. In other words, although appearances are deceptive, individuals let them guide their judgment. The perceived warmth and competence in a person's face play an especially important role in this judgment. The results suggest that the first impression a person makes can also influence moral judgments that would actually call for objectivity.
These impressions can have far-reaching consequences for how people behave in social exclusion situations. It is conceivable that a cold and incompetent-looking victim of exclusion would get less support, or, in the worst case, bystanders may even actively join the ostracizing group, all based on one glance at the face of the victim. Very sobering thought indeed. The study certainly makes the case that fair or unfair, uh, as the title of the article says, uh, we tend to make these snap judgments when instead we would be much better off withholding judgment, not judging a book by its cover. And we know that the consequences of social exclusion can be devastating emotionally, especially when it becomes when it comes to children and adolescents, <clears throat> but uh, even adults, for example, in uh, the workplace, if they're uh, excluded from uh, social groups, that can lead to uh, serious problems with their morale, even depression, interfere with productivity, so on and so forth. Well, you know, the article about the study certainly uh, points out these very serious issues. Unfortunately, it does not suggest solutions. You know, how do you change this tendency when uh, all they did was uh, show uh, subjects in the study a uh, facial expression for two seconds, uh, one designed to elicit a certain reaction, and then uh, observe social exclusion behavior. Um, You know, again, I think it just boils down to uh, trying to encourage, uh, in all cases, uh, especially in younger people, not to make snap judgments about someone based on their facial expression. Uh, Be uh, open to uh, someone in terms of their social warmth and their competence uh, without making these snap judgments. Um, Not such an easy thing to do to uh, change these uh, tendencies we have. Um, Let's face it, if we could get people to stop judging a book by its cover, as it were, that would certainly go a long way toward taking care of a lot of society's ills. Uh, Who knows, maybe even decrease uh, some of the violence that we've been seeing going on lately. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and that you found it interesting and informative. But above all else, I hope that you have a wonderful and stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening and have a fun and safe Labor Day weekend. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.